I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So this week we're taking a break. Here is an interview from our archive with Maxime Benamba-Clark. Hope you enjoy it. Because it's time. It's, it's time for reparations. So I'm sick of being a side Indian character. LGBTIQ rights are black rights. It's like, it's a form of cultural imperialism. The only thing I have in common with this character is that she's black. This does not look like me. I'm Gary Foley. I'm Francesca Ramsey. This is Amir Rahman. And you're listening to The Race Card. Um, yeah, and Maxine, it's been, it's, it's really great having you on the show. And we've been talking about getting on for some time. And I guess... Tell us a little bit of yourself and give us give our listeners who may not have heard of Maxine Benjamin Clark yet, but will very, very soon, about who you are. Uh, so um, I'm a writer. Um, I'm of Afro-Caribbean heritage, Australian-born, and I started out primarily as a slam poet, um, so kind of doing performance poetry um, around the place. And um, more recently, I've published um, a collection of stories called Foreign Soil. Interesting. Um, I guess uh, you're of Afro-Caribbean descent and I think also British? Yeah, well, my parents uh, grew up in London. They were both born in the West Indies, so in Jamaica and Guyana, but they both grew up in London and then migrated to Australia um, in the mid-70s. Interesting. And I guess a lot of people think of um, a lot of black Afro-black people in the Caribbean are of Caribbean descent and... Uh, actually, at Black Voices, we we had a color come on, and he was talking about Brixton, mm-hmm. about in the seventies and eighties, basically being Jamaica. Basically, you yeah. you were in a different place. Mm. And where did I guess where did your parents grow up? Uh, where did your parents live when they were in uh, the UK? Um, so they they lived in various places: um, Tottenham, Walthamstow. But I guess yeah, around that time, the kind of um, late sixties to late seventies, there was um, kind of like, the first generation, I guess, of um, British-born. Um, people from the Caribbean. Um, Migration started kind of around the mid-50s and so you suddenly had this generation of black kids that essentially were British-born but with Caribbean roots. So I think that kind of fostered a really particular culture in certain areas of London. Interesting. And I I guess um, I know um, from a friend, a mutual friend of ours, that you went to um, the Slavery Museum in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. How was that? Yeah, I was I was researching the second of so I've got a memoir coming out later next year called The Hate Race, which is really about growing up black in middle class Australia, white middle class Australia. And as a kind of I guess sequel to that, I wanted to go back and try and trace my family's roots. So um, I was awarded something called the Hazel Rowley Fellowship for Biography, which allowed me to go to London at the start of this year in January and do a bit of a research trip. And yeah, one of the places I went to was the International Slavery Museum in Liverpool, which was 
absolutely haunting, um, as you can imagine. I mean, I kind of, you know, you know a lot about slavery from reading, from watching documentaries or Hollywood, Hollywoodizations of the slave trade, but to actually go there and see the extent of it and see original kind of items of torture and testimonies from slaves was just horrific, yeah. Must have been, I guess, very kind of, because obviously being of Afro-Caribbean descent, a lot of a lot of the slaves were from from that part of the world, and I guess specifically with your parents living there for some time as well, must have brought up some some memory, not not necessarily memories, but just some scars you didn't know were there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of talk about racism as if it's this contemporary thing, forgetting that it has this, you know, hundreds and hundreds of year history of, you know, black people being suppressed by white people, beaten by white people, raped by white people. And I think we just kind of often don't think of that. We think of racism as someone yelling some, something on a train. But to actually go, oh, yeah, you know, this actually has a really serious foundation and the things that were done at that time are really the basis for contemporary racism. And I guess people don't usually think about racism and, and kind of like resource, ex- resource extraction and think mm. about the loss of land, the loss of wealth, the loss of, of history. Mm. Absolutely. And I did a lot of kind of talks when I was there. So tours of London and things like that. And one of the um, tours that I did was you went around and looked at various um, motifs. And there was things like, you know, the, the Cutler's Guild of London, who their emblem is like two elephants holding up a shield because they were using ivory from taken from India for the handles of the cutlery. And so there's kind of this massive legacy of just you know, conquering and raping the entire world to get these resources that he's kind of left in Britain that that doesn't really get talked about that often now. You know, it's kind of like, oh, that was the past and this is now. But, I mean, that's kind of the foundation of of the division of the world, you know, the third world and the first world. Why do you think there's not necessarily that discussion, particularly in Britain, because we usually associate discussions of race to to America. America is the most racist place in the world um, and and things like that. But we don't usually talk about if there was no Britain, there'd not be an America. Mm. There'd not be the people, the origins of the people of white Americans stem from from. From, from Britain, basically. Mm, yeah, it's a really interesting one. I mean, I think it's partly that kind of faux politeness of, of English society that you just don't talk about things that were, you know, in the past. And even, I think even I interviewed some family members of my grandmother's generation, and even some of them were reluctant to actually, when I interviewed them about, you know, how were things when you arrived in England and, you know, what, what was the racism like, very reluctant to talk about those things because I think it's that... Um, that generational, you know, you don't want to upset the status quo, you don't want to go into talking about these disturbing things, you just get on with life. Interesting. <laughs> uh, Renzi? Oh, I was just, um, I just heard that some of your work is being taught in schools. Yeah. I was just wondering, how do you feel about um, the importance of diverse education in terms of writing and in terms of um, what is being taught in especially Australian schools and British schools? 
I think it's really, really important that we have diverse um, voices on the school curriculum. I mean, when I was at school, it was like Shakespeare, George Orwell, Jane Austen. That was pretty much all there was. I think the closest thing to my experience was like looking for Alla Brandy, which was about an Italian girl, you know. And um, yeah, so to have my work, there's a few local schools in the kind of West that are studying my work, like uh, Werribee Secondary College is doing it for year 11. And I think to have stuff that um, is not necessarily set in white Australia and for kids to see reflections of themselves. Um, it's just, it's so important. You know, I, I didn't encounter literature like that until I was out of high school. And I think had I been exposed to black writers or, you know, non-Anglo-Australian writers in an early age, it would have made my journey so much easier. Like, um, I remember, uh, I'm pretty sure everyone's seen Chimamanda's um, uh, TED talk about the single story. Mm. And if you haven't, check it out. And she she basically said she couldn't conceptualise African or, or specifically to her, um, her where she's from, Nigerian writers. She could not conceptualise a story that included herself or someone who looked like her. Mm. And... Exactly, reading, writing, um, visual kind of like movies and and TV and everything like that change our perspective, change our, I guess, the way we see the world. How how impactful is reading diverse writers, reading black and brown people talking about their stories? I think it's huge. I mean, particularly when you're young, it validates your life and your experience. And it says, one, that your experience is important enough to go down in writing and go down in history. And also that you have the right to tell your story. I think when I started out in creative writing, I was writing about white people. You know, like I was a student in high school and I just never gave any thought to making a character a brown person because it was like, there's no Australian stories with you know, non-Indigenous black people in them. How can I write that kind of thing? So I think just that going, oh, yeah, you know, I, um, when I went to Werribee High School, they kind of went, one of your stories is set in Footscray. You know, we all know Footscray. We've been there. We've eaten there. We've, you know, lived there. And it was kind of this um, realisation that, yes, you know, our experience is important and it does, it's a story that does deserve to be told. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also, I, you you did this very like it still resonates with me today. Um, your poem at the Cornwall West event um, a few months ago, when you mm. talked about um, what we know today as AFL mm. and uh, and Mangrok, mm. and uh, I guess talk to us about that and the process of of your writing. Mm. So yeah, it's a poem called um, Mangrook and essentially it was inspired by um, the Adam Goods story, not so much this year, but kind of um, the first incident that happened where a 13-year-old girl was racially abusing him and just came from me, I guess, watching that and thinking, this is absurd. Spring is my favourite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Because this is an Indigenous game that we're talking about. This is somebody playing an Indigenous game on their own land, which has been stolen from them. And I think that just those basic facts weren't talked about. You know, it was all about kind of, should Adam Goods be tougher? Should we hold this 13-year-old girl responsible? You know, maybe it was her parents' fault. And those kind of fundamental 
um, discussion of why this might be wrong or why this might be upsetting wasn't there. And so I wanted to write a spoken word piece that spoke to that and that kind of explored um, this history of dispossession and, you know, that thing of having to stand on your stolen land, sing a national anthem that doesn't speak to your experience, that's not your, not sung in your language, and then at the end of all of that to have this experience where someone is abusing you. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's a piece that I took quite a long time to write and um, I guess I was really mindful of... You know, I'm not an Indigenous person. How do I speak to this experience without kind of co-opting the Indigenous voice or experience? Interesting. Like, um, I guess in a, in, a, in a more broader sense with your writing, how do you, what is, what is your process? And, and I guess how have you um, found your own voice while writing with in mind of, as you said, you started writing about white people and you didn't conceptualise a time when you could write about someone who looked just who, who looked like you mm. and who had similar experiences um i think that's just come with time and also reading broadly i think the fact that i was never exposed at at high school to people like Toni Morrison or Alice Walker or people who weren't necessarily writing into my experience or even, you know, Indigenous writers, we didn't read any. I think Sally Morgan was on the um, curriculum, but we didn't study it. And um, so just being exposed to other writers and realising that actually there are thousands of thousands of stories out there. And if my story is not out there, then maybe I need to write it. You know, maybe that's something I can do. I guess, like, on that note, how did you find the process of trying to get published as a as a black writer, mm. especially within Australia with, I guess, a kind of small group of black writers here? Mm. Uh, very difficult. <laughs> um, my poetry I published with, I was lucky enough to find a really small press, um, a Picaro Press, which now um, I think has been acquired by Janindra Press in, in Adelaide. But... Um, um, Rob Real there really liked my poetry and was willing to put it out but it was a very small one-man operation so it was pretty much he would produce the books and everything else was up to me so in terms of promoting it trying to get it into bookstores um, was quite difficult and then with Foreign Soil my short fiction collection I probably spent about two and a half years trying to get it published um, and it did the rounds you know did the rejection rounds of almost every publisher in Australia I reckon and then eventually won something called the Premier's Award for an unpublished manuscript. And that was very much a door opener. You know, every single thing that's happened in my career in the last kind of two years stemmed from winning this competition, which I think is, is, is great, but also quite sad because I think there are many versions of me out there who won't win one of these competitions and whose work is probably as good, you know, if not better than mine. And so I guess I hope that as more people of colour get published, you know, doors start to open. One of the things um, I'd really like to ask you about is the, the idea of the black writer and adding that, that extra element to it. And then this idea that because you are a black writer or a person of colour writing um, about anything, basically, it has to inadvertently be political. And you have to, in a sense, perform, whether it be blackness um, for a crowd, and I guess how do you um, navigate that while trying to to just write what you what you want to write? Mm. I guess for a long time I wasn't navigating that 
I wanted to talk about blackness because I felt the narrative wasn't out there. And it's only really in the last year that I've started to go, okay, I feel like I've dealt with the things I want to deal with in terms of putting my version of the story out there or representing people like me. Um, how do I now go forward? And, and I've been lucky enough to have been thrown a few opportunities outside of that. So I do a bit of work for the Saturday paper, writing profiles um, of, you know, just basically interesting people that I meet <laughs> along the road um, or, you know, people like um, actors or, um, you know, chefs, comedians um, and so that's been really great for me in terms of going okay I don't just have to write about race it is interesting and fun to do other things and also that external recognition that you know yes we don't have to just call Maxine when something happens that's race related and we need an opinion piece and I think that can be a danger that um, writers of colour get boxed in not only internally but externally by editors and by publishers it's like no you have to write that race narrative do you feel that is in a sense limiting as well because um for me as well like uh, in my writing in not obviously not into the scale of, of, of yours obviously but in the sense of feeling that you have to economize economize no econ i'm trying to say economize economize <laughs> yeah. yes economize your trauma basically and how that's more a sense acceptable in a very mainstream white audience who, in a sense, by listening or reading your writing feels, in a sense, more moral and more mm. upstanding? Mm. I think absolutely. I think particularly in memoirs, um, white readers love the the black or the writer of colour trauma narrative that, you know, I've had a hard life, that I've come from poverty and I've, you know, either risen above or ended up in jail, you know. And, um, you know, while that is, it's a valid narrative, I think for my, particularly for my memoir, I wanted to write about middle-class Australia because I very much grew up in suburbia and I think that's a really interesting you know we often when we talk about racism we talk about rednecks you know reclaim Australia people who potentially don't have a you know a high level of education whereas I wanted to talk about this kind of casual insidious racism that you get in suburban Australia that is very much not explored and so I guess I've tried to find ways of doing things differently um in terms of that, you know, the narrative and what my story is and trying not to play into that kind of um, narrative that everyone wants you to write because it, it sells. It does. And how do you do that while managing to have a, a family and, and two children? <laughs> I don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think you know, like that. That's kind of almost true, you know. You, I think, as a creative person, particularly up until about four years ago, I was working a legal job as well. That's kind of my other career, and so balancing that, how much can I of my creative self can I give before it starts to impact on my family time or impact on the other work that I'm doing? Um, I've been lucky enough that in the last year and a half, I've been able to actually make a living off writing and teaching and speaking and things like that which makes it a bit easier. Um, but, you know, it's just, I guess I look at it as, as work. You know, it's fun work, but, you know, I look at it as a job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> I guess sort of finally, um, what I found in Australia that even though the community of writers of colour is really small, the community is really strong. 
Mm. I was guess I was just wondering, like, how have you found um, the support of other writers of colour in Australia to be, especially in getting published and getting jobs? I think it's been absolutely extraordinary. Um, you know, for me, um, when I was trying to get Foreign Soil published, you know, I needed to get people to endorse it, you know, um, so quotes that you put on the cover or whatever. So approaching people like Alice Pung and Randa Abdel-Fattah, um, Tony Birch, people who, are, you know, have been working in that fiction world or non-fiction world as writers of colour for a very long time. And they were just so generous and so ready to give of their time and supportive and... Um, I do think that even though the community is small, there is this sense of solidarity. We all recognise how difficult it is. And when someone new comes along, it's like, yeah, you know, <laughs> another person's made it through the door. Quick, pull them in, you know. <laughs> so I think it's great. You know, there's a real sense of camaraderie there. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I've, I've noticed it myself just by just messaging someone like you, for example. I mm. messaged you a few weeks ago. And said, "Can you come on the race card?" And you're like, "Sure, what time? When, <laughs> what, you know." And and it's that easy. And and, yeah. and people listening at home or wherever you're listening in the car or wherever, you know, you can listen wherever you want. Uh, you know, just message someone, send them, shoot them an email, um, whatever it is, and you know, you'll be surprised by the response. You you really will be. And and finally, thank you so much, Maxine, for coming thank on the you. show. Thanks for having. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.